Blog Talk Radio. Ah, cats. Jump back and dust off your Cadillac. You're listening to Respect for Life with your host, Brother Leroy, on the Keys Network. Blog Talk Radio, baby. Act like you already knew. Ow! Welcome, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the first-class citizens of the world, to the Keys 107 Network. This is Brother Leroy with the Respectful Life Communicator segment of the Keys 107. We want to thank all of you for supporting the Keys 107 by listening and passing on the word that you have listened to the Keys 107, to the various programs that we've done, and especially our classroom sessions with Respect for Life, the communicators, we come on Saturdays from 8 until 9, and usually Tuesdays from 7 until 8, uh, 7 until 9, rather, but tonight we'll be on for approximately 7 to 8, 10 thereafter. But what is important is the subject matter and the fact that you have an opportunity to hear voices that you do not normally get a chance to hear over the so-called general media. Tonight we're doing a segment of the series that we've been doing on Saturday evenings. We're doing a short segment, Gifted and Talented for All. The premise for our series on Gifted and Talented for All is that the Gifted and Talented programs that are sponsored by the various school systems throughout the U.S. and especially here in New York are located primarily in non-black communities, which sets off anxiety and the maneuvering on the part of parents to get their child into a gifted and talented program, most often way outside of their immediate communities. So it puts a stress on parents. But what is overlooked is the fact that each and every human being is born with gifts and talents. And it's a matter of the right environment for those talents and gifts to demonstrate or to come into full blossom. And that's possible when you have concerned educators, even if the environment of the school is not great. But if you have concerned educators, then the gifted and talents within the children can come out and blossom so that parents can see and maneuver and get them into uh, gifted and talented programs implemented in their immediate areas. Without further ado, we have a young man out of Tennessee. He's based in New York right now. And he is a engineering background. He's developed a math program, an engineering focus, STEM, rather, science, technology, engineering, and math program that is targeted to inner-city youth. In fact, it fits anyone. The model of education that he has fits anyone. Brother Dotson of New York City, God bless you. Thank you for joining us, my brother. God bless you, Brother Leroy. Thank you for having me. Uh, last summer, I had the pleasure of observing an education laboratory, I'll call it laboratory environment, created in a four-week period in which some young children from the inner city and primarily uptown in Harlem that uh, just blossomed in a matter of four weeks 
they learned uh, uh, some of them, my observation, were uh, considered special ed or less than uh, learning capacity in the various public schools that uh, their children came from. But in those four weeks, they demonstrated a great amount of talent that would otherwise have been overlooked or not discovered by their parents and themselves. Please share with us the program that you did, the results that I saw were very, very good, how that came to be and uh, the model that folks listening may use in their various schools or communities. Well, well thank you. Our work uh, relies on the work of an a education scholar uh, whom uh, many of the listeners may be familiar with, either through in his personhood or through his prior work, but that uh, the educational scholar that I work uh, uh, draws from is the work of uh, Dr. Edmund Gordon. And Dr. Gordon uh, 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 created a uh, research center that he located at Columbia University uh, called Institute for Urban and Minority Education. And uh, among his many areas that he uh, uh, did studies around, but he looked at what conditions are essential in order to stimulate uh, high academic gains for, uh, well, as his his program uh, research organization, Institute for Urban and Minority Education, IUME, uh, uh, at uh, Columbia. Um, so, so basically it was looking at uh, what are the conditions that lead to high academic achievement for blacks, uh, uh, for uh, uh, Latinos, what we might call today the underrepresented minority groups uh, in fields like science and engineering. And uh, uh, Dr. Gordon's work um, uh, also drew heavily from that of non-black um, um, scholars, but uh, he pretty much codified uh, what could be thought of as a, as a, as a formula uh, that it's very, very consistent with being able to replicate high achievement, uh, not only in education and learning, but actually in any field. All right, and uh, the uh, I'll give you five or six steps that that are regarded as essential. Okay, and uh, the first of those steps is early exposure to good learning opportunities, uh, good teaching and learning. So if you uh, good compelling lessons. Okay, a uh, a compelling teacher who can gain the attention of children uh, or of learners, and uh, but who also follows uh, good, sound, and solid pedagogy. So, good access to good teaching and learning. The next area that he looks at uh, is that the good teaching and learning, uh, and the earlier the better, that it needs to occur under conditions of joy that not stressing out, not constantly barking at people to, you know, uh, uh, be afraid of their own shadow, but to create a joyful environment um, uh, uh, and that students learn much better. And uh, and this is very culturally relevant. If you look at uh, African learners, for example, um, not necessarily those that are, uh, say, um, uh, modeled after Western systems, but... Uh, traditional African learning environments allow children to have free latitude. And 
it's very consistent with high ability to learn. The third area uh, that we looked at is um, trustful relationships between the adults and the the, the learners, the youngsters, uh, but also trustful relationships between the learners to themselves. So, uh, uh, so far we've talked about early and continuous access to good teaching and learning that grows increasingly rigorous, okay, that is uh, practiced under conditions of joy, uh, that is led uh, where there are trustful relationships between the young people and the adults, uh, the young people and one another. Now, this formula goes on to say that the things that you um, uh, teach or that you that are part of your curriculum, part of your focus, you don't want them only to be available or exposures only in the classroom. So when you step outside of the classroom, the expectation is that what people learn is going to reinforce what is learned in classrooms, what's learned in schools, what's learned on the football field, uh, on the basketball court, uh, in the music studios, and so forth. Okay, and so that concept of of that the learning can be re- reinforced uh, even through conversation, even through conversations with adults, through friends of the parent, for example. A lot of times, uh, a message that uh, comes directly from father to son um, uh, may be received a little more quickly if it comes from the friend of the father who is the neighbor down the street who also has a relationship with the child. Uh, so, uh, but in that case, there's a trust relationship between the adults that the message that they're going to hear reinforces the message that is valued by uh, the uh, primary um, uh, instructor there. So that concept we call redundancy, uh, uh, that learning that takes place in classroom can also take place in the communities, can take place in the libraries, can take place in the museums, can take place through reading a newspaper article, can also be reinforced through the conversations of adults. And so the fact that the knowledge that is important does not only reside in classrooms is a key factor associated with high achievement. Okay? And there are some others that get to be a little bit more um, uh, esoteric. A few other things down the list just quickly. Uh, we, we, we want uh, to throw in the, um, uh, you know, we, 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 we don't want to put people in environments where they're going to not be safe. You know, it gets into uh, some of the things that we call stereotype threat and other things. But, but for the most part, those are the big items so far. And there, and, and what you find is that they're quite accessible to most people. You do not need a PhD in psychology in order to um, seek out uh, excellent learning opportunities uh, uh, to uh, provide early exposure uh, to. Uh, to see that the experiences become increasingly more rigorous over time uh, and where there are good relationships with other like-minded learners, like-minded families, and so forth. So, um, and, 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 you know, and, and also, you know, Dr. Gordon's work does parallel the work of Benjamin Bloom, who is um, not a black man, but nonetheless has studied um, uh, peak performance and peak achievement uh, among learners. Uh, uh Brother Dotson, just hold on a second. Uh, I want to let my engineer know I'm getting feedback in the background. Might um, 
uh, if you can hear me, make adjustments. The um, uh, let me go over the what you've given us. In in one, early exposure, reading and learning. We got we got partners too. Telling uh, uh, with a, uh, requiring a compelling teacher that is a teacher who uh, follows good instruction uh, methodology and uses materials. Mm-hmm. Just, just like a coach captures the attention of his athletes, you want a teacher that uh-huh. can capture and hold the attention of the learners. Uh, okay, good. That's a that's a good example. Just like a good coach. Okay, and education under conditions of joy, that it, it should be um, conveyed in a fun, uh, not not laughing and joking, but in an enjoyable environment that the education should be uh, in, in a situation where the children are having, it's a good experience for them as opposed to stressful and exactly. anxiety and intimidation. Yes. Uh, education, uh, a trustful, the proper education should have is enhanced through a trustful uh, relationship between learners and adults, the adult teachers and learners and one another. So that between a trustful relationship between the students and one another, and between the students and the adults, and I, I, I'm projecting out from that that. The right environment in the classroom is one where the children are not prone to make fun of one another for asking, quote, a dumb question or not knowing the answer to a question. Yes, because that is that's not a trustful relationship. That's uh, that's an unsafe environment, uh, which creates winners and losers. Um, yeah, it's that's not a safe environment. So uh, that does that doesn't fit. Okay, what what you just gave, winners and losers, the opposite is of that is everybody wins, winners and winners. I'm sorry, what was the question? Okay, what I said what I said, I'm just commenting on what you related to as uh where the negative situation is winners and losers. The opposite right. of that is everybody wins. It's a winning exactly. yep. for everyone. Winners everybody is a winner. And based on not a falsehood, but showing the value and the gifts in each in each one and respecting that. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, four, what you teach should have uh, reinforcement outside the classroom so that you teach with an idea, uh, even if it's a, a, let's say it's math, advanced math or algebra, what you would do as a teacher you would think of examples of the algebraic uh, formulas or the, the, the symbols and whatnot that would be picked up on the outside, that you could use examples in the classroom that would be reflected on the outside on a continual basis. That's in one case. And you might even encourage the parents to um, with an easy formula of whatever, whatever, whether it's algebra, or whether it's geography, or so on, things that can be uh, that would reinforce the learning in the class. That's me mm-hmm. giving you back to what uh, you yeah, have to say. Right. Go ahead. 
Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you could do is, uh, uh, especially for uh, teachers that may be listening in, is to pay attention to what exhibits, what public education exhibits are funded generally through public education revenue streams. Uh, primary place that does a lot of public education programming is the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, the best educators, uh, the best uh, performers, uh, those exhibitors, uh, they use state-of-the-art talent uh, because when you walk by it, they know that you're there for a little bit and you're going to remember something about it. That's an education. That's not The museum is not for entertainment. The mm. museum is for education. The museum is to reinforce uh, or to uh, create a type of learning that simply cannot be made available in the classrooms. So if you're doing a lesson, for example, on mammals, and you take them to the uh, museum hall uh, where they see these big um, life-sized uh, stuffings, uh, you don't have to preach that mammals have hair. You know, you can stand right there and look at it and see it with your eyes. You yeah. do everything except touch it. <laughs> okay. Excellent. But but uh, but 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 uh, uh, exhibitions, uh, uh, even the hardware store, uh, the Home Depot. If you're going to put some carpet on the floor, you know, um, uh, why do you need to know a math formula so that you don't pay for more than what you need? Mm. Okay, if you're going to build something, you know, uh, in fact, technology, you know, of, of STEM, the T stands for technology. Many people think of technology and they think of computers or they think of digital media. But the true technology is associated with the vocational education programs, such as uh, construction, such as uh, land bricks, such as knowing how to build a house. So it's one thing to theorize about the formulas, uh, uh, but it's another thing if you can put that knowledge to use and make it um, uh, fulfill some need that is relied upon by humans. Okay, and that whole uh, connecting the gap between knowledge and the uh, fulfillment of human needs generally is the domain of applied technology, something that we um, uh, desperately need to find our way back to. And I can think of nothing that makes me sadder than when I walk by a construction site and I see every ethnicity of people engaged in construction in New York City except the black. That's That's not what I, when I was a child growing up, that was not the image that I saw. Those who built the roads, those who built the buildings, those who laid the sidewalks, did the electric electrical work and so forth, they were the blacks. And uh, we now uh, have to contend with the image of seeing everyone uh, associated with builders except each other. And that's that that's that 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 is a that is a damage that, that's a damaging image uh, to see this. Uh, uh, while we may not sit back and talk about it, the the brain records everything, and uh, you know, you, we just like that we need to be mindful of sending uh, intentionally positive messages. We also need to shine the light on uh, those unspoken but nonetheless equally harmful images of not seeing ourselves in um, the professions that every group needs to to be vibrant. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Keys 107 Network, and I'm Brother Leroy, your host. Online is Brother Dotson. He is the creator of High um, Performance Learning, and he'll give you the full title of that. But he also has done a summer program uh, uh, last summer, a summer program 
that was executed at City College here in Harlem, USA, and it had excellent results from my observation. Uh, young children learning, being exposed to STEM, science, technology, and engineering, and math, and uh, definitely a step outside of the classroom's environment that they are exposed to in the districts here in New York City, and especially in the Harlem area. Uh, you may have a question. We only have a few more minutes with them. The telephone number is 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618, and you hit one on your telephone keypad to ask a question. Um, the last point that you made regarding those, the, some of the formula that uh, Dr. Edmund um, Gordon has laid out is a safe environment. And a safe environment, uh, j just without us taking for granted a safe environment, what would that be in his formula? Okay, think of it uh, along the lines of high expectations, okay? Um, uh, uh, talented adults can bring out the talent in youth uh, because we fully expect them to learn. We've spent hours developing our lessons. We have built the most compelling examples. We reinforce it by going out into the community and being able to point to what we mean. For example, uh, the field trips that we, we take uh, our students on, ecology cruises on the river. We don't just talk about the need to preserve uh, wildlife in estuaries. We take, to, we take them out. Uh, on boats where they can see uh, species of birds uh, and marshes and plant life that they never see, uh, would otherwise know are there, protecting them from the the, um, the surges of, of of the sea and so forth. A lot of cleaning out a lot of the pollutants uh, before they can uh, come in contact with 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 with, with humans in the habitat we live. Okay, uh, so we employ these practices, and we have every therefore have every reason to believe that our students are going to learn because if they don't, then they deprive us of the opportunity for success also. So high expectations is very much a part of, of, a, of a safe environment. Uh, so uh, those who uh, uh, fulfill those uh, aspects that we talked about but also believe in the students and uh, can observe the students and make changes and shifts uh, why? Because our, we, we fully see and intend for the students to succeed with the learning. Therefore, we can be flexible with our learning. We don't have to know our subject matter. We know it very well enough to bring adaptability and flexibility. But also, I should point out to you, we know it well enough to hold our students accountable for correct actions on their part. Okay, we, uh, we you, know, our, you know, the efforts that we pull together are just too valuable uh, to um, uh, so we 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 expect that our students will um, live up to the name of our program, which is high performance learning. May I give you uh, uh, for the audience uh, our website or or maybe an email uh, if there is people listening who may want to learn about our programs for the future or how they may be able to get involved? Yes, sir. Please do. Okay, uh, the one website where you can read prior information on the program is www.hplinstitute.org. HPL stands for High Performance Learning. 
www.hplinstitute.org. A parallel website, which is sort of, uh, it's, it's coming online now, but we're uh, in the process of transitioning from that previous website to www.cque.org, Center for Quality and Urban Education, cque.org. And if, you ha- if there's any uh, one that would like to uh, maybe send a question, a comment, or uh, to me, uh, that will come to my attention if it is sent to info, I-N-F-O, at cque.org, info at cque.org. Uh, student, I mean, the, we um, we do have an online application process uh, uh, for our, our summer program, which will run from July 1st through July 31st um, uh, here in Harlem. Uh, and uh, the information on how to apply can be obtained by sending an email to uh, info at cque.org. Okay, and the website is cque.org also? Yes, that's one of the websites. The uh, parallel website is hplinstitute.org. Got it. And cque.org. Yes. Okay, we have a call on the line. Caller, thank you for your patience. You're on the air. Yes. How is the audio? I probably need to pick up the phone. You need to pick up the phone, sis. Uh, yes, okay, that's not so easy, but okay. Um, good afternoon, uh, gentlemen. Um, good afternoon. I need yes. the brother to... Hello? Yes. yes, we can hear you. I need the brother to clarify because I missed the first few minutes as to whether he's talking about a private, a charter school, a public school. Okay, our our program is a community um, education program. It is a private initiative, but we uh, uh, we enroll uh, students out of public schools. Uh, We also enroll uh, the uh, uh, students that are sponsored directly by their families. I think uh, if if you can tell me if I'm understanding the question correctly, uh, are you asking about ways to get children involved? If that is the question. Then the answer would be well, we have a that, no. That's uh, that's a good question. I'd like you to elaborate once I I get off the uh, the line because that's also an excellent question. But my okay. question is around. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware that uh, the News Hour P- on PBS is doing this series on uh, different types of schools in the United States. Uh, yesterday, I think it was 161 schools are involved in what's called expeditionary learning so the first part of my question is is do you do you understand that that term and what they mean by that okay repeat the term again it's called expeditionary learning and basically expeditionary learning actually invent something where as a generator where they had to they were overwhelmed at first because you know we say I don't know anything about electricity and blah 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 but they, the students got through it. So I want you to talk about that type of project-based learning. The second part of my question is what I see, okay, with everyone on those damn cell phones and the digital media, is that everyone has forgotten the importance of reading. They used to say that if you want to hide something from black people, put it in a book. So the second part is, is what is being done to emphasize with all the technology that's also spy technology, 
what is being done to get people back to old-fashioned reading where certain things they will never learn, not even on a DVD, unless they read it in a book. And I'll listen over the, the air. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Sir. Right. So project-based learning or expeditionary learning, basically uh, discovery-type learning. All right. Uh, we, uh, I'm, uh, there may be some aspects of that that uh, may we may not hit exactly uh, uh, because I'm not completely familiar with the, that term, um, but we do implement what we call project-based learning, and uh, all of our students are required to uh, uh, to do a learning project. They're required to do a public presentation. They're required to employ what we call the scientific discovery, the scientific inquiry. Uh, or the engineering uh, uh, the engineering method, okay, to solve or address a problem from uh, beginning to end. So uh, we package that in terms of a, of a discovery question, a hypothesis, uh, the uh, the use of data, uh, and uh, uh, to be able to definitively say whether or not the data supports or uh, undermines the uh, the uh, the the starting learning that. Um, uh, coming into the question. So we do implement uh, uh, discovery learning uh, in that sense. We also emphasize uh, the built environment. All of our students actually work with hands-on learning. Uh, our programming theme for this year is uh, dealing with uh, the natural environment. So uh, we, uh, our learning will emphasize uh, food, food science and nutrition uh, and the preparation of food using uh, more natural methods, but also producing products that look like what you find in the, uh, out in the, in the consumption. It's important that we uh, remind um, our learners that uh, everything comes from nature and that uh, they have a they can exercise choices around what goes into the body. We want those choices to be informed by the knowledge of, of nutrition science and food preparation uh, uh, know-how. Uh, but at the end of the day, that the very things that they find in the uh, the supermarket are things that can be uh, made under their own control. All right, so if we couple uh, scientific and engineering knowledge with it, it's a little bit more palatable for people to uh, accept than if we just call it home economics or cooking, okay? Somehow, if we uh, focus it just on the technology or the trades, it doesn't have quite the glamour as when we put the science and the engineering behind it. But if I work, if I work for Procter & Gamble, which I did, uh, making Duncan Hines uh, cake mix and cookies, and we, you know, the, uh, 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 the process for making cakes is a long oven on a conveyor belt, also known as a, a reactor. So uh, we can use uh, fancy engineering terms and techniques to help people to recognize the things that they already know. Again, mm -hmm. reinforcing uh, that uh, the scientific knowledge that's applied out in the large factory that you see driving by on the road is not different than the science and the know-how that's applied in your kitchen at home. So we, you know, we try to make those connections, and we try to liberate uh, the the, the uh, curiosity, the ability to to um, to discover, uh, and without it having to be in an environment that is not easily replicated. Okay, mm -hmm. it, 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 nowadays, it, it, more and more schools don't even have basic science laboratories at all. Okay, so if we if we if we if we associate science with an environment that is too constrictive or requires too much specialized equipment, 
then you know, then that that leaves out a respect for the work of people like George Washington Carver. So when Booker T. Washington built his school, he built it from nothing, okay, but produced one of the world's greatest scientists who started with absolutely nothing. He had no gas chromatographs, okay. Mm. He had no um, uh, uh, cryogenics or any of these um, modern advancements, but uh, his science was world-class and world-respected and uh, pretty much uh, uh, impacted the um, uh, the welfare of every person living in the country. And that was uh, one of the most prolific scientists ever produced among blacks, uh, greatly underestimated, and that would be George Washington Carver, Dr. George Washington Brother, Carver. Brother Dotson, it's, uh, we're at the end, and it, it just so happens that our next guest, her name is Amelia Robinson. Amelia Robinson knew Dr. George Washington Carver. Her and her husband were very close to the extent that he would stay at her house on the weekends, and their son, uh, his godfather, is Dr. George Washington Carver. She's coming into New York this coming weekend, She's going to be at Riverside Church in the main sanctuary. And uh, she's our next guest. Uh, for those of you who um, may be listening by phone, you can have your friends and neighbors uh, plug into this program on the internet. www dot blog talk radio b l o g talk radio dot com forward slash the keys one o seven that's the number one zero seven. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash the keys one oh seven and your friends out of town will be able to listen. And of course those of you who have friends who don't have internet, they can listen by way of the phone two one three nine four three three six one eight. Doctor Dotson, once again the email address for folks to connect with your program for the summer is Info, I-N-F-O, at C-Q-U-E dot O-R-G. CenterQualityUrbanEducation.org. The uh, website is, would be www.cque.org. My brother, I want to thank you very much. And for the audience, uh, look forward to hearing him on our Sunday show. He'll be on in the next couple of weeks on our Sunday show on Harlem Community Radio. That's www whcr.org between 1 and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday afternoon. Thank you, my brother. God bless you. And for our audience, stay tuned for some announcements, and we'll go right to our guest, Amelia Robinson and Brother Dennis Speed, in our last segment today. Mm. Thank you for having me. Of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face -face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet, now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com.
success, fashions, and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're black with you. This is the Keys 107 Network. I'm Brother Leroy, and I am thankful to the Most High for blessing us to be with you, you to be with us. It's a classroom, a short classroom today, but filled with information that you can pass on to your friends and relatives. Be sure to always bring a pad and pen when or pencil when you listen to these shows because either you'll pick up references to a website or you'll pick up principles, P-L-E-S, that you will be able to utilize in your personal development or the development of your children, your grandchildren, nieces and nephews, friends and associates. Our next guest uh, is a young lady, <laughs> your heads up, regarding uh, George Washington Carver, because our first guest mentioned our great scientist, George Washington Carver, in his last comments, and it was a fitting segue to introducing this young lady from Alabama who is one of those unsung heroes or sheroes of the human rights movement commonly called the civil rights movement in America. Uh, her name is Amelia Robinson. She's affectionately referred to as Mother Robinson, my sister, God bless you. Thank you for joining us on the Keys 107 Network. Can you hear me, Sister Yes, Robinson? can you? Can you hear oh. me? Yes, ma'am. Loud and clear. You coming through just like just like over breakfast table with biscuits and uh, <laughs> and, and porgies and grits. And, and don't forget the bacon. Yes, ma'am. The bacon is shaking. Um, <laughs> Also online is Brother Dennis Speed. He'll be speaking after Sister Robinson because he's part of the the committee bringing together a an educational, uh, when I say an educational, very informative Saturday afternoon. This coming Saturday at the Riverside Church, and we'll hear more in the details. But the primary guest on that particular day, a salute to Sister Amelia Robinson, uh, Sister Robinson, you and your husband were very instrumental in helping the human rights movement, which is called the Civil Rights Movement, gain footing in Alabama, and you also interacted with some of the notables of that period, such as Martin Luther King and others. Please give us a flavor of the atmosphere in Alabama as it relates to the the suppression. I want to talk about, because people don't know about that, the 
was it uh, great times or were the Q Club Klan uh, very active? Did people disappear? Were people beaten? Were people killed? Uh, given an environment in which the human rights movement uh, developed and uh, became victorious in that part of the South? Uh, it happened that I was born in Savannah, Georgia, and we didn't know anything about the atrocities, the evil way that the African Americans were kept down to the extent that they thought it was right for them. Mm. And it happened that my husband, and at that time we were married, not married, and he was the county agent when I met him. He was a Tuskegee graduate. And uh, he graduated two years, two or three years before I graduated. And um, one of his prize instructors was Dr. George Washington Carver, whom he made very close to him, almost as a son, even until after his death. And later on, in 37, we were married. And um, I thought so much of him because personally, I had had dealings with him. Then the two of us together, why we just uh, felt that we had a family with with Dr. Carver. Mm -hmm. And... When we, uh, before, when I was in Savannah, Georgia, at age 10, I asked my mother, could I go to Georgia State College to hear this man that I knew nothing about. Wow. But uh, the lady took us there, and while we were standing we heard this voice. It was a very, very voice that was so high you didn't know who it was. And we started giggling. We began to laugh when we noticed it was a man instead of a woman. And uh, this lady said, if you don't stop giggling, we're going to take you back home. And that was my first impression of a man that I had not not seen and I had not heard of except that it was Dr. Carver. And uh, not knowing that I would go to Tuskegee, but uh, later on I was a student at Tuskegee. And uh, it was very interesting because this same man that we thought his voice was so high that we were uh we thought that he was somebody else exactly. and uh, later on <clears throat> later on 
I was made the home demonstration agent of Dallas County. And Dallas County is in the center of Selma, of uh, uh, Selma, Alabama, and uh, it was a section where people had been beaten down so that they continuously thought within their minds that you can't do like the white folks do or don't you do this and so because the white folk wouldn't like it. And we we worked with the people in the rural district. I was a home demonstration agent, and my husband was a county agent. And in those days, the county agent taught people how to raise bigger and better crops, mm-hmm. how to be able to make uh, your cattle better. And it was my job to see that you had children that were not, uh, uh, that had health, the best of health and sanitation, teach them how to cook and how to train their children. Mm. And uh, these were some of the things that we had to teach them. And they were, uh, they lived in the same houses that their forefathers lived in when they were taught, uh, when they were brought to uh, Dallas County. And that was true throughout the South. They made people of color just as they did when they became uh a slave, and the they, the way that they treated them, they felt that they could not do what they wanted to do because white folk wouldn't like it. Mm-hmm. And that attitude that they have today, right there in Selma, Alabama, in Tuskegee, and even other places. They figured that they wanted to uh, to please the people who were white, who were white, and today it is no better. In fact, very little better. But wow. one thing about it, the two of us came from Tuskegee, which of course was founded by by George, uh, founded by. Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. and we had associates with Dr. George Washington Carver. We were associated with him that he was a part of our home. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you some of the things that uh, we associated him with. And it was... Uh, when I went to Tuskegee, and that was in 1924, and I uh, met the Dr. Carver, whose voice was the same, and it was very interesting to me. Yes. And it was, uh, 
I remember that my people didn't want me to go to Tuskegee, not for any reason, but uh, they didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> and um, I happened to tell my people that I would work when I got there. Mm-hmm. So I became one of the um, one one of the associates at uh, the teacher's dining room. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, and being in the dining room, it was only the teachers, but I also was one of the home demonstrate one of the, um, the uh, students there working and trying to help my cause as being a student. And uh, I played basketball, and in the afternoon, as soon as you finish setting up your table, then, of course, we went to basketball practice. But in some way, in setting up the table, one of my guests came in late. Dr. Carver was just across from my table. And just as I got ready to leave, one of my guests came in, and I had to come back and serve her. So I took the, uh, we were supposed to bring everything on a tray. And I took the tray and put everything on that tray. And when I got to the table where this lady was, and she was late, nearly everybody was gone, I accidentally turned the tree over the lady's head. Mm. And people started laughing, and Dr. Carver said, See, young lady, you must not do things like that. You don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You take them one at a time, one at a time. And I think he impressed me more than anything else, because there I learned that I was to take the meat and put it on the table, the bread, and put it on the table. But he impressed me to the extent that I learned how to wait on table. Then I graduated, and when I graduated, I was asked to work at Tuskegee. Uh, in fact, Tuskegee would be our uh, the 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 part of the United States Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I uh, and my husband, who also was working with. Tuskegee as the home as a county agent, and it was his job to see that we had more corn and more cotton and more feed and whatnot for the uh, for the cattle, and it was something that I had never seen nor heard. But he tried to put what he did into what we were taught at Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And uh, we had what was known as the annual meeting, and we invited Dr. Carver to come and speak to us as uh, when we had the Farmers Conference, and it was the first Farmers Conference that we had as a county conference. And when he uh, talked with him, Dr. Carver said, well, if you come and get me, <clears throat> I will be glad. So we said that you can come and spend the weekend <clears throat> with us. So my husband came to Tuskegee and brought Dr. Carver back on a Friday. And uh, it was so rewarding because he was able to relate with these young people and with the older ones also mm. with reference to the um, to the farming. Mm. And as you know, he was not only a man of farm, he knew every little thing that uh, that goes on the farm. And he could tell you how you can kill it or how you can uh, improve it. Mm. And uh, he was also a fellow who crocheted. And the interesting thing about it is he would go out into the woods. We took him out into the forest. Yeah. And when we took him out into the forest, he took some of the sand that uh, was in the in the uh, the forest or the land, mm -hmm. and later on, we found out that he made so many different colors of the different sands that he had gotten throughout the entire uh, state where we were. But we had him there as our weekend guests, as we had quite a few other people, such as Mrs. Mary McClog with Thune mm -hmm. and a lot of others. But oh. later on, um, in fact, before we we were married, my husband said to Dr. Kent, Dr. Carver, Dr. Carver, <clears throat> if my wife were to have a son, would you be his godfather? And uh, he said, yes, I'd be happy. <clears throat> so later on, on June the 19th, 1939, mm. I had a son. Mm. And when I did, he sent um, a check for $5. And he said, "Be sure that you put this in his uh, in his bank and start his educational fund off for him." Mm. And when he was one year old, he sent one dollar mm. to be put in the bank. And when he was two years old, and he sent him two dollars. And when he was three years old. It was a time 
that we came to the funeral. He passed in mm. uh, 1943, mm. and we passed. And what was right interesting is my son and I would always talk about once upon a time, and I began to tell him about this man who was traded for a horse mm. and how he was so sickly. And mm. I said to my son, now, who was that? He said, everybody knows it. That was Jesus Christ. That's who that was. <laughs> and he, he related him to Jesus Christ. Yeah. But uh, I took I took some films. In fact, we didn't have the types of cameras as we had now. But <clears throat> I took uh, some films. And uh, unfortunately... Somebody took the uh, the films that I had. In other words, it was uh, different from the uh, cameras you had. Now you had to have the camera and carry it with you. Right. But um, I hope, hopefully, I will be able to retrieve that because I took. Uh, the feet, the head, and it was not good at all. But at least I got some of the the funeral of Doctor Carver, and my son had a daughter, and he gave his daughter his name, and that son, that daughter, is now Carver Boynton who has, um, uh, she is working and has charge of the, uh, let's see now, the, the community, the, the housing, and also the community of uh, the stores. And uh, she is expecting to also graduate from the uh, from school of law this year. Beautiful. Sister Amelia, we we have uh, just a few minutes more. I would like for you um the the spirituality associated with George Washington Carver going out into the woods and speaking to plants. Uh, what if anything did he share with you and your husband regarding that, um, the concept or the understanding, what did you observe of him regarding his spirituality? Well, one thing about it is that he was a man of God. I can't remember now some of the things that he recited, but he believed in God. And he believed in so many of the things that he did that uh, he was inspired. And one of the things <clears throat> that I taught my people when I was in extension work was the fireless cooker. And that is where we have now. The, fire, the, the the cooker that we have, it is what 
he had when he was working at Tuskegee. Mm. But uh, he had done so many things that to this day he, he believed in God and he believed that he was inspired by God. Hmm. This, this fireless cooker, is that an invention he created? It was, yes. We call it the fireless cooker. How does how does that work, from, from the sun or what? Well, what what happened is, uh, what do we call that? Um... What 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 we had at that time, we had we made um, we made uh, uh, um, some or we asked the folk to have a bucket and to have this bucket with uh, uh, the way that the way that they would have uh, uh and I I can't tell you right now okay. but we would use that to continuously keep the heat in the bucket mm-hmm. and then we had another bucket and we would use the uh it, it was a waterless and fireless cooker mm. And and uh, then we would have the heat that would have bricks. Yes. We would have the bricks very hot and put it into this other bucket. Then after that, we had uh, uh, that we would cook on a tri uh, a three part bucket. Mm-hmm. We would put the food in each one of them. One would be maybe we'd say the rice and another one would be uh, the greens and another one would be the meat. Mm-hmm. And we would have it in such a way that it would be very uh, tight. And in the mornings at 5 o'clock when they would go to the field, they would take that with them and wow. it was it was uh cold it wow. was it was just ordinary it was uh the place that they it was cooked while yeah. they were in the field right. and then at twelve o'clock when they got ready to eat when they opened this cooker the stylus cooker they were had hot, they had hot meals. Wow. So that was one of the things, and if you notice in Tuskegee, they still have one of his projects there in Tuskegee. Well, Sister Amelia, you'll be coming to New York this coming Saturday, and that's going to be a treat for all the people who can uh, get there and interact with you and the other panelists. And we have online uh, Brother Dennis Speed, who's going to give us a brief, uh, overview of the event and how folks can participate, and that'll be the conclusion of our our interview. I want to thank you, Sister Robinson. I don't want to hold you on the phone uh, beyond you know the, the where you out, as we would say in the old days, 
Don't want to leave you out. <laughs> want you to be fresh and ready for us up here in New York on Saturday. Well, I certainly appreciate your asking me to come, and I do hope that I will be able to give some information that they can use. And these young people really need to feel that uh, they don't have to have everything. Mm. They can make out. And later on, when they become an adult and they have their professional diplomas, then they can be able to get what they want. <laughs> yes, ma'am. God bless you, my sister, and thank Sister Harriet uh, for facilitating this interview with you this evening. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Good night, oh. ma'am. All righty. Goodbye. Brother, <laughs> Brother Dennis B. Okay. Yes, sir. Brother Dennis, um want to thank you for your patience and also for making it possible for Sister Amelia to be with us on the Keys 107. And that was just a portion of her life. And uh, tell us your appreciation of her and her husband's work so that we can have a full picture of the significance of Amelia Robinson. I think what people just heard, which, of course, you can't get from any living human being today. You realize what she was talking about here. She's talking about being at Tuskegee in 1924. She's talking about Carver, how Carver came over to her house, and Carver's invention, so forth and so on. Uh, so, so number one, think about it this way. Her grandmother was born just at the inception of the Civil War. So you're meeting somebody who has as their living memory a relative, all right, who goes back to the time of slavery. Now, this lady, who didn't notice, she didn't say anything about what she actually did on the bridge in Selma, what she actually did to bring Dr. King there, what she actually did around voting rights. She didn't even get into it because, actually, in her mind, the most important thing that she was actually involved with even though those things were important, was the work she was doing on the former plantations with black sharecroppers and farmers who were trying to get free of the legacy of slavery in the 1920s and the 1930s. I mean, we're talking about a period going back 12 presidents. You know, count it, back, count it up. And, and, and so, well, I'll tell you what I think is important about why people should come out. Number one, out of sheer respect mm. for black people and for history as a whole, I mean, just history, out of sheer respect for the fact that, you know, people often will say, I wish I could have met Frederick Douglass. I wish I could have met James Baldwin. I wish I could have met Lincoln. I wish I could have met this one, that one. They bring up, they bring up these people. Well, here's a person who is the closest thing you're going to get to not just an historical figure, but a figure who changed history and made your life better, somebody who directly made everybody's life in this country better. And I'll just tell a little bit of that story, and then I'll be, I'll be out of here. Basically, it was Amelia and her husband. See, they went to Selma in 1929, 
they replaced the head of the NAACP down there who had just got run out of town to Detroit on pain of getting of death if he didn't leave the city. They became the head of the NAACP at that time. So they had to deal with the Klan and all that stuff. But a lot of people don't realize that in the state of Alabama, by the time you got to the 1940s, the late 40s, it was illegal to be a member of the NAACP. It was like being a member of the Communist Party. They banned it in the state. So in the period just before Martin Luther King even emerges at the age of 26 with the Montgomery boycott, Amelia and her husband are down in Alabama in Selma, and they are registering people to vote, even though their organization is banned. That's why they form what they call the Dallas County Voters League. And they had to do that because they couldn't call themselves NAACP, because then they would automatically go to jail. So she compiled the whole Voting Rights Act case, 75 people that were denied the right to vote, which was the first case that the Kennedy administration used in the spring of 1961 to bring what we later know to be the Voting Rights Act. All the stuff that happens with Dr. King, not to take anything away from Dr. King, but all the stuff that happens with King happens in 1963, 4, and 5. The case is brought on the basis of 15 years' worth of work that Amelia and her husband do, where 75 stalwart citizens try to register. They can't register, but they're all kept, all the, the, the attempts and all that stuff. There's a lot. It's called the, the, the Wall of Honor. It was up in her insurance office. This lady and her husband ran insurance offices. They ran independent businesses for black people. They were mm. community centers. They did all that stuff in the 1930s, mm. the 1930s, 1940s. So, 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 yeah, and I know how uh, people say, well, how, wait a minute, how is that possible? 1933 is 80 years ago, and this lady was doing that then? Well, that's because she's 107 years old, which mm. I didn't tell people. Whoa. So what you just heard was you heard a 107-year-old lady, right? Wow. Just like telling you a few things. You heard her calmly going through it and just like knocking it out of the park. So um, people need to come and, uh, and meet her and meet yourself. Meet, meet, meet what's great about, you know, about what you did. or You know what I'm saying? So that, that's what I would say is at Riverside Church, 1230 on Saturday. Um, and I know no matter what people think they're doing that's important, hey, and I realize obviously people may do things that are important, but try to change it. Try to get there. Riverside Church, 1230 on Saturday, and she's going to be there speaking. Uh, Riverside Church is where? All right, that's up on 490 Riverside Drive. It's like at 100. If you had 122nd Street and Broadway, if you were standing on 122nd and Broadway, you would just walk up the street there, and that, that the church is the big church, that real big one, uh, done by Rockefeller. It's right across from Grant's Tomb. And people know Grant's where Grant's Tomb is on Riverside Drive. But uh, like if you you can get that, you take the number one train gets there, I get off at 125th, you're like four blocks away. So. Um, you know, that's where it is, 1230, and uh, you know, people can get yeah, – what's that? Last question, Dennis, and that is, um, before you give travel directions, how did you become aware of Sister Amelia Robinson? How did I become aware of her? Well, that was 1979 at that time. Uh, as, as people may, may think everybody knows me, 
I'm associated with Lyndon LaRouche. And we were writing a book. We wrote a book called Dope Incorporated. Uh, and the book was exposing what today everybody knows about money laundering. Back then, nobody knew about it. I was at a conference down in New York City, down at the Sheridan Hotel. The Prince Hall Masons were doing a conference. And I had been asked to come there to speak to them about uh, this anti-drug work we were involved in. Amelia was there. I didn't know who she was. And she was there, and she had the first edition of her autobiography, Bridge Over Jordan, Bridge Across Jordan. Um, so she was there. She was there with her uh, last husband, James Robinson, uh, and who's now deceased. And uh, so I walked up and started talking to her. And when she began to tell me what her story was, and I'm telling her about what, what I'm, I'm about, which at that time we were talking about building a, you know, rivers, second Nile River in Africa and uh, Trans-Africa Railway, uh, high-speed rail across the whole continent. And, see, she didn't even get into that. Amelia is at heart a kind of a black nationalist, okay? We didn't even get into that with her to this time. But that, she was sort of into that whole, uh, she loved that. Uh, she, she did a lot of work, worked with the Schiller Institute, which was founded by Helga LaRouche, Linda LaRouche's wife, back in 1984. She became the vice president of it. But I was working with her. I went down to Tuskegee in 1980, which would now be, what, 33 years ago, this November, and uh, spent some time with her down there, and uh, that's how I know her. And, and, and so you got to understand, I met this lady 12 years after Dr. King was assassinated. You know, she was in her 70s then. <laughs> You know, it, 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 it's, it's ridiculous, man. You got to realize she was organizing in Selma, Alabama, in 1929, the year that Dr. King was born. Mm. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, people can miss it if you want, but you know, you have never had a chance to meet somebody like this. And I'm just saying that people need to avail themselves of that. Okay, so it's Saturday in New York City, Riverside Church, 12.30, this coming Saturday, Riverside Church, 122nd Street, right off Broadway. And uh, once you get to 122nd Street and Broadway, you can't miss it. You just ask somebody, walk up the hill, walk towards the Hudson River, and you can't miss the church. Uh, Directions there is the... uh, uh, from Harlem would would be the M60 bus. M60 bus passes by there. The Broadway local, the one train stops at 116th Street, and you can walk uh, right to uh, Riverside Church, and um, it, it's 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 a no excuse location. Yeah, yeah, and then any, anything that stops at 125th Street. You know, just walk straight on the walk. That's right. That's right. Right. You yeah. Check out also on the website is www.ameliaboyntonrobinson.com. I think we got a whole website up there with our stuff. And uh, yeah, brother Leroy, anybody wants to contact, I guess they can contact station. Am I right, or why why are you doing a blog talk thing? So I don't know how they would do that. But yeah. Uh, Well, hey, look, the information is there. 122nd Street and Broadway, right off Broadway, Riverside Church, this coming Saturday, 12:30. Come and interact with Sister Amelia Robinson and other panelists who will be there. It's a full program of information, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. 
Dr. Abdul Aleem Shabazz. No, Dr. Um, uh, Abdul Aleem Muhammad. Abdul Aleem Muhammad will be moderator on one of the panels. So for those in the audience who are familiar with Dr. Abdul Aleem Muhammad of the Nation of Islam, he will be there, and uh, it's going to be a great afternoon. I want to thank you for making it possible for Sister Amelia Robinson to be with us in the audience today. My brother, once again, thank you very much for your input here on the Keys 107 Network. Anytime, sir. Thank you very much. All right. God bless you and your family. Okay. See you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to the Keys 107 Network. Saturday, the good Lord willing, we'll be on at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Right here, we'll have a continuation of our series, Gifted and Talented for All, Gifted and Talented for All. Our guest will be Brother Raymond Shorter of Bowie State University. Uh, There are those of you who may have a DVD of Minister Farrakhan at Bowie State. This is one of the brothers who came on just before Minister Farrakhan. You'll hear him saying that Minister Farrakhan is his spiritual father, how he has been uh, motivated to develop the black male agenda on Bowie State College's university campus for freshmen and sophomores and how that program has led to high achievement among the black male students at Bowie State University in Maryland. So, Brother Raymond Shorter is our guest this coming Saturday, 8 p.m., right after Minister Farrakhan speaks at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on www.noi.org. Of course, we're at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the keys 107. God bless you all. I want a special thanks to Brother James and Sister Rafika and Brother Elijah for making it possible for us to bring you these classrooms here on the Keys 107 Network. God bless you all with a beautiful evening. Peace. The Keys, unlocking the doors to unlimited possibilities.